Good morning, Gresham Bible Church. Uh, I miss seeing you all in person, but um, this will have to do for now. For those of you who don't know, I'm Josh Matthews, and today we're going to continue our short series on the servant songs in Isaiah as we lead up to Holy Week and to Easter Sunday. Um, this morning we're going to look at two passages in Isaiah, chapter 49 and chapter 50. As Josh said last week, the servant in these servant songs and in Isaiah as a whole is kind of ambiguous sometimes. It can refer to God's people, Israel, and that's how it is in the first part of the book of Isaiah. But other times, like in these servant songs, it refers to an individual, to God's one chosen servant, the promised Messiah. So this morning's passage, or the passages that we're looking at today, um, they, they highlight this ambiguity. At one point, it sounds like the servant is Israel, but then later, just a couple of verses later, the servant himself is speaking, and he says that his mission is to call Israel back to God. So how can this be? How can it be that the servant is Israel, and the servant is also calling back to Israel back to God? Is Israel calling Israel back to God? That's kind of what it seems like is going on here, and this is the question that these servant songs kind of challenge us to wrestle with. I think in, in some ways this is the main point of Isaiah and of these songs. They pose the question of the servant's identity. Is it God's people or is it an individual? And they point us to the answer to that question. Jesus is the servant and the Savior who restores Israel to God and who calls a all the nations to himself. From Isaiah's perspective, the servant is yet to come, but from our perspective, he has already come. These songs urge us to encounter Christ. They help us to grasp the impact of Jesus' life and his mission for his people and for the whole world, and they also call us to see our place in that mission. And they exhort us to trust in the Savior and in the servant and in the one who sent him. So let's go ahead and read these two passages this morning. First of all, Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 7, and then we'll read 50, verses 4 through 9. So Isaiah 49, 1 through 7. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And then flipping ahead, to chapter 50 and verses 4 through 9. 
says this, starting in verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are with us, that even though we are uh, scattered in different places, that you are present um, and that you are faithful. Thank you for your word. Thank you for um, graciously communicating yourself to us through your word. Um, We pray that you would give us wisdom this morning, today, as we go about the day um, in our separate ways, that this, this word from Isaiah would be an encouragement to those who need to be encouraged, and that it would challenge those who need to be challenged. Um, we, we need you, we trust you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this passage, chapter 49, we'll, we'll first focus there. It opens with the servant speaking. He is summoning the coastlands, it says, and the peoples from afar. He's summoning them to listen and to pay attention to what he's going to say. Earlier in Isaiah, just uh, a chapter earlier, in fact, Israel was the one who was called to listen. Uh, But here the servant is ushering in a new phase of God's plan. The servant's message is now for all to hear. The scope of the mission of the servant, it includes peoples from afar, which includes you and me. These two passages that we're looking at today highlight um, two kind of general things about the servant. And these are our two points for today. First point, the servant's mission and ours. And this is kind of the focus of chapter 49. And the second point is the servant's suffering and vindication. This is kind of the focus of chapter 50. So the first point, the servant's mission and ours. The thing that stands out clearly from the beginning of chapter 49 is that the servant's mission is from the Lord. He says, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. Then in verse 2, it goes on and it says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me a polished arrow. He hid me away in his quiver. The servant is chosen and commissioned by God, and this continues in chapter 4 also. Four of the verses in chapter 4, chapter verses 4, 5, 7, and 9, uh, they all begin with this title for God that's somewhat uncommon, this title, the Lord God. The Lord is often used to refer to God, and God is often used as a title, but Together, it's, it's somewhat rare, but he repeats this, this title at the beginning of these verses to emphasize that the one preparing, commissioning, and helping the servant is God himself. This repeated emphasis throughout these passages points to the fact that God, the sovereign God of all the universe, is the one acting in and through the servant. The servant would come and do God's work, and he would do it in the almighty power of the Lord God himself. And what is this work? 
What was the servant's mission that God sent him to achieve? At least part of it is to speak powerfully. It says that his mouth is like a sharp sword. His mission involves a message. It says he would come proclaiming God's word, the same mighty word that in the beginning God used to speak all of the universe into existence. And this is the same word that in the end Christ, the one who's called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one who's called the Word of God, he's coming again with a sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth. The servant wields the sword of his word, but it's not a sword that just cuts and pierces. The word also brings comfort. In verse 1 of chapter 50, the servant says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. This description of the servant uh, fits perfectly with what we know of Jesus. Jesus is the living word of God, and he's the one who speaks for the Father. He's, he's the one who spoke as though taught by God. He said in John 7, he said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And the servant, Jesus, is also the one who sustains the weary with his word, just like the passage says in Isaiah. He's the one who said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The servant's mission is a message, and the message is a message of good news for God's people and good news for the whole world. Verse 5 of chapter 49 says, The Lord formed him from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to God, and that Israel might be gathered to him. This restoration of Israel is part of the mission of the servant and part of the gospel message that these songs proclaim, but here we have to wrestle with the servant's identity, this question that we talked about earlier. What does it mean that the servant is called Israel in verse 3, but then in verse 5, the servant's mission is to bring Israel back to God? How does this work? What I think this means, I think the point here that we're supposed to get is that the servant, the servant in these songs represents true Israel, the kind of servant that Israel was supposed to be all along. Much of Isaiah and really much of the Old Testament is about how Israel failed in their role as God's chosen people. Instead of trusting the Lord and walking in His way, they repeatedly turned away from the Lord, and they placed their trust and worship in gods of their own making. Another one must come. There must be someone else to fill this role of the true servant. Again, in Isaiah's time, this servant was coming in the future. He was yet to come. But his mouth would be like a sword, but it would be concealed. It would be concealed in the shadow of God's hand. He would be like an arrow, a polished, sharpened arrow, but it would be hidden in the quiver for some time. The whole Old Testament, especially places like in these servant songs, builds with anticipation of this one who was to come, the Messiah. Israel's failures point ahead to something and someone far greater. Maybe one way to think about this is kind of like me telling my kids about Disneyland. Uh, one day, Lord willing, we'll be able to go there as a family, but our kids have never been yet. And so all we can do at this point is describe as, as well as we can what this is like, uh, what Disneyland is like. They get excited when we tell them about it, but without ever having been there, they, all they can do is anticipate and imagine what it's like. They, I think they think of it like Oaks Park because we've told them that it has rides. They've been to Oaks Park. Oaks Park has rides, and so that's what they think of. 
or sometimes they think of it like Wonderland because I guess Disneyland, Wonderland, they kind of sound the same. Um, but what we know, what Stacy and I know, who have both been to Disneyland, we know that it's going to totally blow their minds when they actually do go to the real place. Oaks Park and Wonderland, they're just piddly little replicas of the real thing, of the happiest place on earth. In a similar way, I think the Old Testament is full of all kinds of flawed and temporary placeholders, I guess you could say. Israel's servanthood, like its judges, like its kings, like its priests, and even like its prophets, are deliberately presented in the Old Testament in a way that's meant to point us ahead to the prophet who would be greater than Moses and Jeremiah, to the king whose splendor would far surpass David and Solomon's, and to the servant who would accomplish what Israel never could. When Jesus came, he came to fulfill all that God had planned all along. And as our passage goes on to say, this plan goes beyond a plan for just Israel. It includes the whole world. Verse 6 has the Lord saying to the servant, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. As great as that is, restoring God's chosen people to himself, the servant's mission is even greater than that. It goes on to say, I will make you as a light for the nations. This is the Lord speaking to the servant still, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is why this is such good news for us. Christ came to bring all people to himself. We are the nations this is talking about here. God's not finished with Israel, but through Christ, God's servant and the one true Israelite, we too have salvation. We're brought into God's family to be his people. This is at the heart of what these servant songs are saying, and it's at the heart of the whole story of Scripture. God had a plan for his chosen people, and that plan would culminate in one individual representative, a descendant of Abraham. Through that one man, blessing and salvation would be available to all peoples. This was not plan B. This was the plan all along, and this is the gospel message of the whole Bible. So when Jesus did arrive to fulfill his mission, the building anticipation of the whole Old Testament erupted with this wonderful good news of the restoration of God's people and with the glorious light of salvation for the nations. This is why the old man in the temple, Simeon, who was promised that he would not see death until the Messiah came, this is why when he took the child Jesus into his arms, This is what he said. He said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is basically a quote of Isaiah 49. Jesus is the fulfillment of the servant songs, and the restoration and salvation he came to achieve is the culmination of God's perfect plan. And this mission, this mission that the servant came to accomplish, is it's not over. Jesus did perfectly what he came to do, but the task of bringing people to himself and spreading the light of salvation to the nations, it continues today. As followers of Jesus, we're called to carry on the mission of the servant. In chapter 13 of Acts, Paul quotes from this same verse in Isaiah that Simeon quoted from, and he quotes it to show how his missionary work is a continuation of the work of the servant, of the work of Christ, bringing light to the nations and salvation to the ends of the earth. God sent the true servant to be a blessing to the nations, 
the blessing that Israel was supposed to be. And now Christians, the people of God, us, the church, we are called to follow in the servant's footsteps and to serve the world around us. Right now is a unique time that we live in. Um, this pandemic, it's making life difficult in all sorts of different ways. There's sickness, there's stress, there's fear, and it seems to be affecting the whole, the whole globe in a lot of ways. Our lives have changed pretty immediately and in some cases, for a lot of people, pretty drastically. But at the same time, for us as Christians, I think this is also a time of unique opportunity. There's a message of hope that people have always needed, and it seems like right now they might know they need it more than they've known before. Could this be a catalyst that God is using to bring His people back to Himself and to bring others out of darkness and into His marvelous light? I'm not saying I know that God sent the virus for this purpose. I don't know that, and I would be skeptical of anyone who says they do know that. But I do think there are some ways that we can be optimistic about this situation. As we're sustained with His Word when we are weary, we too can help sustain others with that same Word. And as we, like our great servant leader, are awakened morning by morning to hear His voice, we too can speak to others with the tongue of those who are taught. These times present an unusual opportunity for us to turn to Him in faith and to share the hope we have in Christ with others. Our mission is to continue the mission of the servant and to pass along His message of good news for all. There's much more that we could say about this gospel message and a lot more that these servant songs do have to tell us. Um, they tell us more about how the servant carried out his mission. And one other thing that we're, we'll focus on here, and this is the second point of our sermon today, is the servant's suffering and vindication. So that's point number two, the servant's suffering and vindication. Uh, chapter 49, or our passage in chapter 49, ends in verse 7 by saying this. It says, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. The servant's mission was to suffer. At least that was part of it. He would be despised and mocked. He would be abhorred and even killed. Yet, he would also be vindicated. He would gain the glory and worship that he deserved. This two-part theme of the servant's suffering and vindication, this builds further in chapter 50. That becomes more of the focus in that chapter. There, in verses 5 and 6, the servant says, I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. The final servant song of Isaiah 52 and 53, it really focuses even more fully on the suffering of the servant. Um, but here in chapter 50, and I'm going to try not to steal any thunder from Josh for his sermon next week on chapter 52 and 53, um, here it says the servant would suffer willingly. He wouldn't turn away and avoid the blows of those who were striking him and pulling out his beard. He wouldn't turn away from his tormentors. Jesus knew that this would be his fate, and he was willing to bear it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed that the Father would take this cup from him. He knew he, this cup was coming, but he asked that God would take it from him, but he also said, not my will, but yours be done. He was willing to suffer what he knew he, was, he came to do. 
One of the most astounding and really one of the most sobering things about all of this is that the torturous suffering and the eventual death that the servant came to endure willingly, this was inflicted by the very people that he came to save. His mission was to restore Israel, and it was Israel that handed over their own Messiah to be crucified. And before we jump to criticize those Jewish leaders too quickly, we have to acknowledge that we too are just as responsible for his death. Each of us. It was our sin he bore in his body on the cross. He became the light to the nations and the salvation to the ends of the earth by dying in our place. We can't fully appreciate the wonderful grace of the gospel without also recognizing it was our sin that put Christ on the cross. He suffered the punishment and death that we deserve to turn away the righteous wrath of God. He took the sins of the world upon himself and became a curse to redeem us from the curse of sin. The one who knew no sin became sin to save us from our sins. He offered himself as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the Lamb of God who died to take away the sins of the world. But praise God, his mission did not end with his death. It did not end with disgrace. His suffering wasn't for nothing. It wasn't vanity or emptiness or vapor. Chapter 50 moves on to a declaration of the servant's confidence in his eventual vindication. It says in verse 7, But the Lord God helped me, or helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. In Luke's gospel, it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. All of Luke's gospel, and really all of history up until this point, was leading to this moment. This moment when the Savior, the servant, would resolutely and confidently set his face to go to Calvary. Jesus would be mocked and beaten, but disgrace and death weren't the ultimate outcome. He would rise again, he would be vindicated by God, and he would ascend to the right hand of the Father, where his enemies would be at his feet. Jesus set his face like a flint and willingly endured suffering and even death because he was assured of his mission's eventual success. The servant goes on to say in verse 8 of chapter 50, he says, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Here the servant is challenging his foes. In some ways, this could be kind of like an MMA fighter who's basically calling anyone and everyone to step in the ring with him. But this is also totally different than that because here, it's not just cocky trash talk. This is the one situation where that kind of confidence is fully justified. Unlike Conor McGregor or any other uh, brash and overconfident athlete, Jesus never fails to back it up. His victory is completely cer certain. And the reason for this certainty is because, as it says in verse 9, the Lord is the one who helps him. Every challenger or opponent will wear out like a garment and be eaten up as if by a moth. The servant takes on the enemy in the sovereign power of the Lord God. He did suffer disgrace and, and death, but that was not the, where it ended. The flip side of the servant's mission was to rise and reign. At the cross and at the tomb, he dealt the fatal blow to sin and death. His mission was vindicated, and he vanquished once and for all his enemies and our enemies. 
And this means that we too can have the kind of confidence that the servant had, that Christ had. We can be totally confident, totally assured in the almighty power of God. Through Jesus, he has defeated our enemies just as he has defeated his own enemies. And our, our greatest enemy, just as God's greatest enemy, is sin. Sin and its consequences, they reach all over the world and all throughout human history. Right now, again, for us, uh, the coronavirus is on all of our minds, and it's one of the effects of sin's curse. It's wreaking havoc on our world. That's the way sin works. But just as the Israelites' real enemy in Isaiah's time wasn't the Babylonians, so also this pandemic isn't our ultimate enemy. It's not even economic recession. That's not our greatest enemy. Or our greatest enemy is not the unsettling certainty of what these weeks, these future weeks might hold for us. And our greatest enemy isn't even not being able to meet together as a church. Um, as much as I long to be together with you all, and as awkward as it is to be speaking to the camera right now, and for you to be watching me speak to the camera right now, our greatest enemy is sin. And Jesus died and rose again to defeat sin and to overcome the curse that it brings, to conquer death, to crush the head of the serpent. That's our hope now in this circumstance and in any and every circumstance. In Christ, we can trust that our adversaries will not be able to stand against us, just as they couldn't stand against the almighty power of God in Christ. Our trust in Him will be vindicated. We can be completely and absolutely certain of that. Isaiah 50 concludes with two options for how we can respond to the servant. Verse 10 says this, it says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. This is one way to respond in times of darkness, by trusting God and renewing repeatedly, renewing our trust in God. Verse 11 then finishes the chapter by giving the other way. And this is the not-so-good way to respond to darkness and difficulty. Behold, it says, all you who kindle a fire, who, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. This option is the way of self-reliance, of putting our hope in something or someone other than God rather than in trusting God. This is the way of darkness and the way that humankind has always chosen from the very beginning. And if we're honest, this is the way that we're often tempted to respond to difficulty as well. But this faithless re reliance on myself or on an idol of my own making, this is what the ser suffering servant came to conquer. We can either try to kindle our own light or we can trust in the Lord for his help and salvation. These passages call us to trust Him. He's good. He's faithful. He is wise. He is loving. He is kind. He provides for our needs. He's our hope in life and death. And we can be completely certain that His kingdom is coming. This doesn't mean that we're just passive. Trusting God doesn't mean that we don't put any effort into our life or that we don't give any thought to how we can go through these times with wisdom. But what it does mean to trust God is that we don't go through these times with, with panic. 
It means we don't hoard toilet paper. It means we don't have to try keeping up with the relentless influx of news and information. We can trust God by sometimes turning off our phones and putting them down and turning off the TV. We don't have to keep up constantly. It's impossible to keep up. We can use these times strategically to uh, accomplish things and to be productive and to disciple our kids in different ways. But trusting God also means that we can be free not to feel like we have to accomplish everything. It's okay if my whole family doesn't learn how to play the guitar or if I don't teach my kids Hebrew and Greek while they're stuck at home. And trusting God is not just something that we do only one time. I don't know about you all, but I find myself needing to hit refresh on faith in God over and over again, uh, all, the, all the time, but particularly during these times. I want to understand what's going on, and I want to know how best to make adjustments in my work, how to provide for my family, how to care for them and lead them. But for me, trusting God means I don't need to always have it all figured out. What about for you? What does it look like for you to trust God in these uncertain times? Just as we have a unique opportunity to share the gospel with others, um, we must also keep reminding ourselves and each other of the truth of the gospel. Gresham Bible Church, let us be a people who respond to these dark, uncertain times by hearing the voice of the servant, by walking in the light of his salvation, and by sharing that message with the world around us. And let us also be a people who trust him, who rely on the name of the Lord and live in confident reliance on our great and gracious God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that um, above all and in all things, you are worthy of our trust. We confess our lack of faith. Um, we are a people who say repeatedly, we believe and help our unbelief. Um, would you draw us again and again back to your character, your faithfulness, um, your strength and your, your goodness and kindness. Help us to trust you deeply um, in this uncertain time um, and all the different facets of how that's affecting us. Um, and most of all, help us to trust and worship you for uh, your salvation through your son Jesus, through the servant who came to suffer and also to um, be victorious. We love you, we thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I want to end today just uh, with a short benediction. This is from Psalm 18, Psalm 18, chapter, uh, chapter 18, verses 28 through 30. It says this, For it is you who light my lamp, the Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. The Lord is worthy of our trust.